Welcome everyone to the Progress City Radio Hour. I'm Jeff Crawford, here with my brother Michael, back in the town hall again. Michael, how you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, happy to be back. In case you missed it, our last episode was right here in the town hall, our first one in a while, uh, with the great Peggy Ferris. Uh, so definitely go and listen to that if you haven't heard that yet. Uh, Michael, I enjoyed listening to you and Peggy talk. Seems like uh, there's there's a lot of ground to cover. So much ground to cover and not enough time. Oh my gosh, we could have I could have just asked her questions for hours upon hours about her career because she did so many amazing things, so many amazing places, worked with so many great people. And you know, the the questions could have just kept on coming. So maybe we'll have to have her back sometime because I'm sure there are anecdotes yet untold. Oh, absolutely. A wealth of unique experiences for Miss Peggy Ferris. But uh, let's get back to your conversation. We're going to listen to part two of Michael talking with Peggy. The last time we spoke, we talked a lot about the Epcot Futures Conferences. And I want to briefly touch on that just a little before we continue with the rest of your career. I was just hoping you could talk a little more about who were some of the more memorable participants in that for you personally. So, um, the, I think for me, it was the conference we did good health in America challenge and choice was one that we co-sponsored with Johns Hopkins. And, um, you know, there was just such a interesting grouping of people. There, there was a fella from Johns Hopkins who did work in public health, and there, um, Fred Graham was. I think we mentioned he was a, a journalist, an investigative journalist, and he provided the um, kind of the keynote address and. For me, it was just such a wonderful look at the the credibility that Disney had in terms of bringing these people together and how, how interested they were in the fact that Disney was interested in issues related to health in America. And those, you know, that included people's diets and exercise. Teen pregnancy was a really big um, issue back in the mid-70s. And and just, you know, the fact that that we had the president, uh, Stephen Muller from Johns Hopkins University and Hospital, and Don Tatum, chairman of the board for the Walt Disney, Walt Disney Productions. It was just such a such an interesting grouping of people. And there were, there was a fellow named Nicholas Clapp, who was a producer for Disney. And he was working on developing media around some really interesting cutting edge things like T cells. They were doing research on, on cancer research and T cells. And, you know, it was just, it was just a really interesting gathering of people. And then um, when we when after we opened Epcot, we hosted another conference, and that was on communications. And it was really sort of it was 
you know, the park was open and we could take people through the shows that existed. But we also wanted to talk to them about what are the opportunities for Epcot to become a forum for discussions about real world issues? You know, you that when we think of attractions, we think about we want an attraction that has broad appeal and we want it, we want it to be engaging for people who have never thought about the topic before. But if you have, then we want it to to resonate. We want it to feel authentic and we want people to feel like, oh yes, they really looked into this subject. And then if you're an expert, we want it to ring true for you as well. But then, you know, that's looking at a really broad audience. And then we were really kind of saying, could could there be an Epcot forum where we could host conferences on important topics of the day and bring people together? And the group who attended that conference was really amazing. There was a fellow named Everett Rogers. And I remember that name because my uncle had given me the book that Everett Rogers had written um, called Diffusion of Innovation. And it was a study in the early adopters and the people who, you know, the people who want to know, they want the very latest, whatever it is, and they want to know about it. And and then there are people who are going to wait a little while until it's a little bit more mainstream. And then, you know, the people who really are kind of the last ones on the train. <laughs> but but he looked at how how innovation moves through a society and who picks it up and who are the influencers and and I was able to tell him that my uncle had given me that book and he said you know I didn't know how what kind of reception it had gotten because he had immediately left to do work I think it was in Nigeria and so he was really like totally and totally engrossed in the work he was doing there and not paying attention at all to what was happening back in the States with his book. Um, there was uh, mayor, former mayor John Lindsay was one of the participants. Wow. Um, Alan Kay was there and, you know, he had done early work on computers and um, I don't have all my notes here, so I reluctant to, to <laughs> sure. give you more on his background, but Alan Kay. And then he actually came to work at Imagineering in R&D. I think as, uh, you know, we had a program with sort of people who have done really advanced work coming to work at R&D for a period of time. So he was, afraid, it was like a R&D fellow, maybe was kind of the title. So that was, you know, to to make sure that we're infusing our organization with people who are doing brilliant, groundbreaking work in other fields. Then there was Sherry Turkle with MIT. And she, I really liked her work too, because she was looking at how do young girls interface with computers? And it, you know, it's like, you know, the boys... You can get, engage them with those video games and blowing things up and, you know, but, but is there a way, is there a formula or a template that 
would find its way to help girls become more interested in this. And this is so, this is 1983. So it's way before STEM and those programs where, you know, young girls go to coding camp and, and are encouraged to pursue engineering and, and things like that. It was, it was really, really um, interesting to just see what a, what an, an eclectic group of brilliant people there were. And so I loved that conference. That was really great. It's a remarkable thing. So many things you've talked about are things that were really ahead of its time, especially, you know, talking about, you know, gender and gaming and that sort of thing. I mean, that's something that's a hot button topic today. And to think that, I mean, gaming video games were hardly even a thing at that point, you know, it was a brand new field. So (laughs) yes, we're really ahead of the curve. Um, I find it interesting as you talk about this, you know, I think a lot of people today who didn't experience Epcot Center when it opened think that, well, you had these corporate sponsored pavilions, they were pushing a corporate message and that's all it was. But you guys really went out of your way, not only to keep things free of real corporate messaging, but I mean, you were really pursuing something something loftier much loftier with all these discussions it was a big idea you know it wasn't just a world's fair where a company sponsors the pavilion and it's only their story that you're telling and and the reason we formed the advisory boards for the land for energy for health for the seas was we wanted to tell, we wanted to be sure that we were telling a more balanced story. And, you know, certainly Exxon was pushing a particular point of view, but but our advisory boards gave us some balance and and an ability to push back a bit and say, you know, there's more to this story than just fossil fuel. So, you know, let's... Let's and then if you if you know Communicore was the place where we could say okay now you want to talk about drilling bits here you go <laughs> you can <laughs> right I mean, that was Exxon's thing <laughs> right so you could um, and the post show for test track was cars you know car showroom and you don't have to worry that somebody's going to approach you and try to um, get you into that vehicle today, but a chance to kind of, you know, actually sit in the car and, you know, kick the tires a little bit without feeling like there'll be pressure to make the purchase. But, you know, we we were trying to create areas where the broader story could be told. And then obviously the corporate sponsors are there because they have an interest in having a platform for their messages. And so to be able to give them something that was more specific to their business. I mean, the challenge for us then was World's Fairs had been so successful at the turn of the going into the 20th century and before, you know, the 1860s and, and the 1890s. 
people, you could build a great exposition and people from all over would come and see the latest, they'd see the latest building techniques through these gorgeous glass pavilions and, and you know, the, the world's fairs that showcased people from around the world, people and cultures from around the world and how exotic that all was. And by, by 1982, when Epcot opened, you know, there were other ways for people to learn about the latest inventions. And so, you know, it was, people didn't, didn't have the same need to come to a, an Epcot to see what's new. But, but we were interested in being able to have ideas that presented that people could take back to their own lives and maybe find ways to integrate some of those techniques into, you know, you could take the living with the land boat ride and take some of those ideas back to your garden at home and say, let's try intercropping. That looked cool. Yeah, and sure. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and so being able to, to showcase those ideas. And I think today it's, you know, the internet is so much a part of everybody's daily life. And you just are sort of bombarded by information that, uh, you know, it's a kind of a different model. Right, right. I think we still we still believe that people need to, you know, there's something really wonderful about being able to come to a place and experience it together or to experience it and be able to share those experiences with people back home. And then you find out that the neighbor across the street had taken their family to Epcot two years ago and did you see this and did you go on that and you know so i think we don't i don't expect that the internet replaces actual visits no, definitely not there's something about the experience that's that's yeah. key to the thing yeah. you know you were talking about all these forums that they wanted to have all these sort of aspirations and things and obviously a lot of that didn't happen what changed what what was it? Why did that really not come to be? Um, I'm not sure. I think you know. I it'd be interesting to look at this against a a, a grid of what was happening in the world at the time, and um, you know, we we were opening Tokyo Disneyland at the same time we were doing the design work for Epcot. And then, you know, and then pretty soon we're doing the, um, we're doing Disney Euro Disneyland. And, you know, so I think companies, organizations only have so much bandwidth to, to think about where they're going to put their energy. And Epcot was, it opened um, and then we had to learn how to operate it and how to how to energize it and how do you create those think you know things like the flower and garden show and the wine and food festival those were sort of interesting things that that could play to a local audience and and 
build kind of a reputation for how much how unique and interesting a visit during those periods of time might be. And I think the focus just became more about operating the park rather than donning a mantle of we will be the place where people come to discuss important issues of the day. I think, I mean, you you have to have a real corporate passion for becoming that. And honestly, one of the funny things that came out of the conference was we were saying, do you think that Epcot could play a role in being a focal point for these kinds of conversations? And, you know, part of Epcot was the Future Choice Theater. I don't know if it was there when you were experiencing it, but you know, they would do polling and, you know, here's a question. How does the audience feel about it? And um, and uh, there was a teacher's, uh, a teacher center. So there was material that would be available to teachers so they could take some of these Epcot topics back to their classrooms and, and teach those things. There were those kinds of, of activities going on. and. The funny thing at the end of the conference was some of the people came back to us and said, we think Disney should be telling people how to run their organizations, which was not what we were envisioning as an outcome of this. We were talking about, we'll be the host and we'll bring people together and, you know, they, you know, great minds will wrestle with important questions. But, you know, it'd be interesting to know if the Disney Institute was an outgrowth of that, you know, is, is that the form something like this took, where it wasn't really what we were maybe imagining back in Glendale, but the Disney Institute did become a place where Companies would come and work through issues and they would take classes in terms of how do we how do we treat people like guests? How do we, you know, how do we empower our employees to feel like they're part of a larger organization? Um, so, you know, maybe the Institute in a way became something like that. That's a, that's a really good point. Uh, and, and a lot of the things that they do are along those lines. So that, you know, you, I see you could draw a line there. Definitely. It wasn't where we were, you know, so we thought we were heading. Right. But, and then years later, uh, when Linda Warren was, um, was in charge of Epcot, we did kind of have some renewed conversations about, a whole conference program and various levels and tiers of conversations and, you know, how you might, which ones would want to have a more public audience? Could you, you know, could you host something that would bring in experts that, that would be interesting to a public to observe or to be able to link into? Um, uh, But you know, again, it 
you need all the stars to align for something like that to happen. And, and they didn't. Right. Well, what you're describing is essentially what is now, you know, like a Ted talk or something like that. Disney could have been yeah. way ahead of the curve yeah, on that. Right. 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 And then, you know, our, one of our seas advisors, Dr. Robert Ballard, the oceanographer and ocean or marine scientist explorer, you know, he out, he, he was such a great resource for us when we were planning the seas pavilion. But then, um, you know, he's gone on to discover all kinds of, of sunken ships. He found the Titanic. He's found a number of, of shipwrecks in the Mediterranean. And he takes, he, he sets it up so kids in classrooms can be tied to his explorations and they actually go with him virtually on these on these expeditions that he continues to do so in a way there's you know it's not a it's not an epcot link directly but it's really pretty cool yeah absolutely it's kind of sort of seeded the field for a lot of these things i feel like i want to ask you about a couple of people i i find it so interesting they were able to get gordon cooper who was a mercury astronaut to help with future world development i know he was kind of involved in some of these sort of um conferences what was he like what was his role right he was just a great guy yeah. <laughs> really 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 nice guy um, you know, a test pilot, and uh, and he knew so many interesting people. There, my for a period of time, my office was in the kind of little suite of offices near his. So I had a desk that was built into the wall. You know, it was like a bookcase, and then my desk. So I, my back was always to the door, and I knew that people were coming and going into Gordon's office because they would be walking right behind me and I'd hear voices. I didn't always get to see who they were, but I know he had, you know, he had someone who used to visit him talking about, you know, this guy was traveling all over the world, exploring places all around the world. Um, there was a really wonderful guy named Dick Fox who had a really strong technical background and, um, and so Dick did a lot of the work with, you know, one of the authors of our book, Women of Walt Disney Imagineering, is a woman named Lynn Maser Rhodes. And Lynn had come to us with a, she has an undergraduate degree in political science and a master's in public administration. And she was writing grants in Glendale when she was recruited to join Imagineering. And so she came in and started writing grants for um, Dick and Gordon uh, for some of the programs that they wanted to explore. Wow. You should, I'll give you her number. You can talk yeah. to Lynn about that because it was, she has a funny story about <laughs> Dick saying, when do we get the grant? <laughs> when are you going to be finished with this? <laughs> but she's a meticulous grant writer. So she did a great job. Yeah. So Gordon was really great, but he drove us to lunch one day and in his, in his car. And, um, and it was like, 
This guy was a test pilot, but he's having a little trouble parallel parking. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he never anyway, played really by the nice rules. Very nice guy. Yeah, very nice well, guy. I find it interesting. You know, he had an office and he was there and he was, it, it wasn't really, uh, it wasn't just a figurehead sort of thing. He was really there doing work. Yeah, no, he was really interested. You know, what my work didn't really take me into their world very much. So I didn't I didn't work on projects with them. Um, other than, you know, we did that the freeze line prediction, the frost prediction conference in I think it was in what, seventy-eight, and where where we were looking at how can particularly how can Florida citrus growers or others involved in agriculture along the East Coast, but I guess anywhere where you might get frost. Um, how can we, you know, what are the leading edge technologies that would be beneficial to them? And and NASA had just come up, or NOAA, I guess, had the um, the GO satellite, so they could really monitor what was happening. Um, in the air and on the ground and the, you know you they could predict which area is really going to get hit with the frost and which one isn't and that you know translates into either a grower takes measures to protect his crop and it and he didn't need to so that's an expense or he doesn't and he should have Right. And that's a sense. So, you know, this was looking at um, at a very specific range of technologies that would be beneficial to agriculture. And, uh, you know, and again, I mean, kind of unusual for an organization like Imagineering to have a group within it looking outside. I mean, we always have had really amazing people inside the organization we have an r&d group and you know you just they do an open house once a year and it's just phenomenal the kinds of things that they are exploring but those things all would tie back to the show and the right. theme parks and uh and so in this case it was looking at sort of bringing people together not trying to invent that technology ourselves, but being the catalyst or the facilitator that brings those people together to create a forum for interesting work. And, you know, it could have gone in that direction more, but it didn't. Right. Well, for Future World, they had Gordon Cooper. For World Showcase, they had Lang Washburn, who was a diplomat. Uh, did he have any interactions with these forums? Did you have any dealings with him? Not with the forums, but because his focus was finding sponsors for World Showcase. Right. And he was based in Washington, D.C. And so he had all these relationships with, you know, with the diplomats from other countries. And so Dan Seymour being, you know, having that gregarious ad man kind of personality so he was involved in i think i guess maybe he was working more closely on the tokyo disneyland project but pat scanlon and and pete clark and jack lindquist so jack lindquist being representing marketing um 
and eventually being president of Disneyland. But when I was starting to work at Disneyland, he was director of marketing. And then he was in charge of marketing for the parks, all Disney World and Disneyland. And so, uh, and Pete Clark being the head of participant affairs that would really be the group to to work most closely with the corporate sponsors. So they set up a, um, uh, uh, an Epcot presentation center in New York in Rockefeller Center. And they had a big, big Epcot model and film. And I never got to see it. So I'm just imagining. Oh, sure, it was, it was like. very swanky. <laughs> sure, it was very but nice. It was there. And, it was very nice. I mean, you know, great address. And so Pat and Pete and Lang would take turns uh, being in New York for the week to host whoever they were able to to line up to, you know, introduce them to Epcot. And when we ended up opening with, you know, a number of sponsors around World Showcase. So we the pavilion wasn't built if there wasn't uh, a sponsor. And in the case of World Showcase, it might be a company like Mitsukoshi being the department store, really, and having an, uh, you know, a, a beautiful retail space there. But then there are also the restaurants and just the beautiful architecture and some gallery space. Um, Canada, I, I don't recall offhand who sponsored the Canada Pavilion, but could very well have been a was it a government was it the government so there, was, there was, the was a beer company i know there was one of the canadian beer companies i think was one of the sponsors mm-hmm. i think a lot of them would have like a, a few you know well and then morocco the king of morocco said of course we want a pavilion and so <laughs> and they sent moroccan workmen to to florida to to work on the pavilion and to build it in the authentically Moroccan way. Um, So it was, you know, each one had sort of a different, a different uh, complexion in terms of how the, how the sponsorship came together. Right. right. And I never met Lang. So that was kind of Pat's, Pat Scanlon's um, side of things. I kept the calendar. So I would, I'd be able to say, okay, these are the people who are going to be at the at the New York Center on this date and this date, and these are the these are the presentations that have been made. But gotcha, yeah. it's a busy junior. time. Did, did you, you know, meet Ray Bradbury? I did meet him, but you know, just in kind of glancing way. So I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't work with Ray, but um, but I. Uh, he did. He did deliver, you know. But he came into Imagineering quite often, and I'm sure that he and Pat Scanlon and Exitensio and Marty Sklar probably had many meetings. Um, I, but just it was. It might have been just before Epcot opened, or just after Epcot opened. Ray spoke to all of us who'd been working on Epcot and on Tokyo Disneyland. And he delivered a speech um, and he called, and he had written a poem 
I think I have it. Okay, he delivered this on April 9th, 19, 1980. And we were still wed at the time. So it's it's uh, to wed imaginaires. So it's titled, Doing is Being. To have done's not enough. To stuff yourself with doing, that's the game. To name yourself each hour by what's done. To tabulate your time at sunset's gun. And find yourself in acts you could not know before the facts. You wooed from secret self. Which much needs wooing. So doing brings it out. Kills doubt by simply jumping, rushing, running forth to be the now discovered me. To not do is to die or lie about and lie about the things you just might do someday. Away with that. Tomorrow empty stays. If no man plays it into being with his motioned way of seeing, let your body lead your mind, blood the guide dog to the blind. So then practice and rehearse to find hearts, souls, universe, knowing that by moving, seeing, proves for all time, doings, being. That's great. Thanks for reading that. That's great. I will. I'll, um, I'll type it up and send it to you. So, you, you know, Ray would have done it with more flourish. But <laughs> oh, Well, I guarantee you that. I mean, that goes without saying that he would have. I've seen we played on a, a, a recent episode some of his keynote from, which I believe you said was the one you were not involved with, which was the health. No, the uh, energy. The well, energy. Was involved in health. Okay, it is the energy one then? The, yeah, it was 1976 yeah. where he gave the keynote. What struck and this yeah. made me wonder, especially in your case, you know, what really struck me, it was a really kind of backroom boys club corporate guy vibe to this speech. And I just wondered what it was like for you as, you know, a young woman in the 1970s to work these events with all these like corporate dudes. That was the world. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, I had been, I mean, it's the world I came into and it, it, it wasn't unique to Disney. When I started at Disneyland in 1965, there were only men in foreman positions. The, those are the people who stay at the attraction and make sure everybody takes their break and records the count every hour. I mean, you have to be there in case there's a big emergency and you would know who to call. Right. But um, they didn't have women foremen until Jim Cora asked Diana Stark to be the foreman for the evening on the Matterhorn. Wow. And she said, you're going to get in trouble for this. And he did. Really? It was like, I mean, I've talked to people, friends of mine, male colleagues who were, you know, working in Disneyland when I was. And one fellow said he remembers his supervisor saying, do you think a woman could be a supervisor? And he said, he talked to me recently because I sent him a copy of our women of Walt Disney Imagineering. Mm -hmm. And he said, I, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I don't remember what I said. 
I don't remember whether I thought women could do this job or not. And of course, now there are women everywhere. But when I got, to, so I was, this was the world I arrived in. So there were no women in supervision at Disneyland, except for Cicely Rigdon, who oversaw the tour guides, who were all women. During my five and a half years at Disneyland, they began to ask some of us to be foreman. So I was a foreman or a lead on Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln for several years. And, oh, okay. you know, they were starting to kind of test the water. Then when they, when we went to Walt Disney World and their challenge there was they had to hire something like 10,000 employees and they hired women as well as men. And these women were in positions of, they were junior, you know, they were like the assistant supervisors or the supervisors. But I, over time, they this became more, more accepted, more, well, of course you will have women. And, you know, and then one day, Meg Crofton, who was started, I think, at the phone company, it is the president of Parks and Resorts. And we were all so happy to see that. But it took her 30 or 40 years. So when I first started at Imagineering, there were no women in management. There were really talented women in the model shop. So Harriet Burns and Alice Davis and Maggie Elliott and uh, Joycey Carlson. Um, but but no women, in, you know, there, there had not been women animators. They did the in-between stuff. Right. But when you looked at the nine men, they were all men and some of those guys had come over to to start wed for walt so claude coates and exitensio and sam mckim and mark davis and colin campbell and herbie ryman you know all of those wonderfully talented key designers were you know they were in their roles and they were they were the people who were the first generation designers of Disneyland. And now we're going to be bringing people in to be the second generation designers of Epcot. And those guys really mentored all these young pups who were coming in with no theme park design experience because, you know, the, the, old guys were the ones who had all the experience and, right. but they were so generous their time they took everybody under their wing um you know the the book that we just wrote about women of walt disney imagineering it's 12 women who um who were asked by well ellie erlinson is this was her brainchild and she decided to invite others other women who had been at imagineering for at least 20 25 years who had achieved a executive level who had led a team and who were team players and who no longer worked for the company and so she invited us to tell our stories and so ellie was the first licensed female architect at imagineering oh wow so this was you know this was 
in the 80s. And um, and that meant that Imagineering had been around for 25 years with no women in those roles. And, you know, so Becky Bishop is a landscape architect and uh, Paula Dinkle and Pam Rank are lighting designers and Julie Svensson is an artist and Karen Armitage, a concept artist and Lynn Macer filling that funny little niche of uh, grant writing. And then she becomes the the head of uh, of research and planning. And um, and so, you know, interesting careers. But for all of us, it was a matter of there were no women in these roles. And so um, luckily, the guys we worked with were really, you know, very accepting and 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 great partners in all this. Yeah, that's good. That's good. But I, I I'd spent about five years in convention sales at Walt Disney World. So, um, and we would try, I would travel with the manager of convention sales and we would go to these um, incentive travel meetings and, and host hospitality rooms. And the only people there were men, right. they were all men. <laughs> so coming to WED <laughs> and doing a conference with only men was pretty much the way it was. So it was just the way of the world. Yes. The book that I contributed to, Women of Walt Disney Imagineering, just to say a few things about it, there were 12 of us who participated in the writing of this. Each of us um, created a chapter that explained our our journey and what we had done in our lives early on and then how we arrived at Imagineering and and we described the fabulous projects we worked on and the wonderful people we worked with, as well as the challenges that people in all walks of life encounter when they they have a vision for something and then someone says, mm, I don't think you're quite right for this or what are you doing here? Why are you taking the seat of a guy who could be doing this? And so with the 12 of us, we represent nearly 300 years of personal and professional life. And we just wanted to share it with people. You know, after Marty Sklar wrote his book, Dream It, Do It, and he went on a tour and met people who were so curious about well, how do you become an Imagineer? And he said he got so many of those questions that he that he wrote a second book called One Little Spark. And for that one, he invited lots and lots of Imagineers across the whole spectrum of work to contribute stories about their experiences. And and so our and there are so many great books out there. Kevin Rafferty's book, um, Magic Journeys, is just such a fun read. And when I read it, I just thought, yes, that's exactly what it felt like on any almost any day at Imagineering. So our hope with the book is that wherever people might be, if they're if they're students, uh in grade school, in high school, in college, or they're just kind of casting about for what am I going to do? How can I make my passion 
part of my life. And um, and so we hope that this will be encouraging for people, that they'll find resources in it that that will give them some courage and confidence to stay with it. And and so I just I just wanted to share that because I think that really is our our hope is that in fact people have come to me after they've read my chapter and they've said oh you didn't know what you wanted to do either (laughs) but (laughs) but you did the best you could uh for each assignment and then my experience was when you do that then other possibilities open up things um and you know my story certainly early on was pursuing something, preparing myself for something that I really, really wanted and tried three times for it and never got it. But looking back, I realized that that preparation, that effort that I put into it prepared me for even more and something that didn't just last a year, but lasted 50 years. So that's all I wanted to say is just we hope that people find inspiration and uh, and we look forward to hearing about their stories. You know, our stories are, there is not just one path to Imagineering. And in some cases, the path started when we were working at Disneyland and how we got there is, you know, those are stories. In other cases, people pursued professional accreditation. Uh, they pre- pursued advanced degrees, but still they might not have been expecting to to fulfill those dreams in the world of theme park design. Um, By the same token, I think a lot of our experiences are very transferable to any other field. You know, you don't have to be involved in a Disney park creating a Disney park or operating a Disney park to, or, or theme parks around the world. Um, you know, there are lots of different, different avenues for people. And, um, and our stories are certainly ones where you start down this path and then this, these other opportunities present themselves and you choose one of those and, you know, it leads you down another path and you meet more people and and you have great uh, joy in the work that you are creating and you celebrate your colleagues and you celebrate their successes. And then you also have to be strong in yourself and with others when the project that you were so excited about is put on hold or shelved or, you know, those things happen too. (laughs) You just have to be able to pick yourself up and say, okay, you know, what did I learn and what's next? But now Imagineering is about to celebrate its 70th anniversary. And when I came back from Paris in 2015, and when I was in Paris, the art director for the Disneyland Park, Tracy Eck, the art director for the uh, Walt Disney Studios and Disney Village, Natalie Piet Caron, the art director for all of the um, hotels, for the seven resort hotels, Sylvie Masara, all women, 
and the senior manager of the department, Kathleen Nunez. Been there 20 years, very experienced, talented woman. So we were, you know, we were very comfortable in our roles. We had men who were in management roles too, and we were delighted to work with Alan and Clive. But um, but somebody did come to me and say, gee, Peggy, all of your art directors are women. Do you, you think it's going to be okay? <laughs> Nobody ever asked that question when they were all men. When they were all men, right. You'll be fine. Yes. Oh, that's so unbelievable. It's been great. But yeah, it changed, a welcome change for sure, for sure. Yes. And when I got back to him, they were they were women in every in every position back at Imaginary in in project management roles and executive roles and leadership roles and engineering and you know they're they're everywhere. Oh, absolutely, as they should be. Absolutely. So after all these conferences, all of these all of this talking, you had to build the park. You next went on to work on Spaceship Earth, and we're gonna save that for now, for a, a future episode, shall we say. Uh, but that'll be coming up soon. But wh what did you do after that? After Spaceship Earth, I found myself in lots of meetings with Pat Scanlon and Steve Bills. And Steve was the chief financial officer at, um, at WED. And they were talking about IRR and NPV. And I talked to my friend, Bridge Battaglia, and said, you know, I, I have nothing to contribute to these meetings. And he said, well, that's finance, get a book. You know, I was an English major, so I didn't, I didn't go into that. So I, I sent away for UCLA's extension catalog, which is about this thing. And the prerequisite for finance was accounting A and B. So I started using my vacation time to take every Friday off to do the accounting homework and then go to the class on Saturday. So I really got hooked on this. I took accounting A and 1A and 1B, and then I did finance and it was like, okay, I can do this. I've got my HP 12C calculator right here and I learned to use it. And, and, and so, um, so I was taking classes. I was doing a lot of, so I was a show producer at the time. And I also moved over to Lynn Macer's research and planning group. So I worked with her in research and planning. And, you know, we had all kinds of really interesting projects. Um, and then in 1987, I got to be the show producer for the Disney Gallery at Disneyland. And in that case, Tony Baxter and John Hench had been putting their heads together about how to improve circulation from Adventureland to New Orleans Square, because the queue for pirates sat right in the middle. And so the challenge was, well, how do we get them? How do we get people through this area without jamming up in the pirate queue? And the, and the answer was building a bridge over the pirate queue and once you did that, then they started really looking at the building that houses Pirates of the Caribbean. And the space above Pirates had been designed as a 
as an apartment for Walt Disney and Roy Disney and their families. But then after New Orleans Square opened in 1966, Walt Disney passed away. And so it never became the family's apartment. And for a while it was used as the INA VIP space. And then it was um, office space for Disneyland International. And and um, John and Tony were looking at it and they thought, you know, if we could put staircases on either side leading up to the balcony at, and the front door, we could make this space available to guests. Mm -hmm. And so then what would we do with it? Well, it's a second floor location. You don't typically put retail on a second floor that people have to climb up to. But it would be, it's such, it's such unique space. And it was designed as Walt's apartment. Dorothea Redmond did beautiful watercolor of what the interior would look like, how the furnishings would be. And so, so they decided that there should be a, um, an exhibit. We would turn this into a Disney, a Disney gallery. And it would host exhibits of the art that resides in our archives that nobody gets to see. So I'm sure Marty asked Van Romans, who was head of the um, the gallery program, to to put together an exhibit of art that would comprise the art of Disneyland. Mm -hmm. And Van did, and they brought me in. You know, the project was pretty well underway, but um, but as we developed this, there was an idea that there would be a small room that would have some really unique merchandise based on the art that was on display. And, you know, we so we got really interested in doing this and we we um, we select we I found a book in the library called the Art Marketing Handbook by Calvin Goodman. And he was a expert and he lived in just over the hill in Westwood. So we brought him over and we showed him the art that we had. And he helped us select pieces that we could turn into limited edition lithographs. There was one spectacular piece by John DeCure, who was an art director. He did Hello Dolly. He did Cleopatra. He, he in fact, he studied under Herbie Ryman at Chenard. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. But he is, I think Marty has said he's like the most talented art director he's ever come across. And John DeCure did this remarkable painting of, um, I mean, he had done it as for work for Disneyland, but it was styled after um, dual theaters that they have in France, where there are audiences on either side of the stage. And then there are, there are tightrope walkers. And he just filled this with fanciful, it's kind of set at the turn of the, you know, the late 1800s. There's kind of a, um, an MC who's in total period costume. There are women in ballet outfits riding on horses across the 
the tightrope. I mean, it is just the wow. most evocative, unbelievable piece of art. Very large. So we made that as a limited edition in a series of 300. John Hinch had done a really charming um, watercolor of Snow White Grotto. And it was a study in how to place the, you probably heard the story about the the bars of soap that we got from, or they're not bars of soap, but the little statuary of the seven dwarfs and Snow White, but Snow White is the same size as the, as the dwarfs. Gotcha. And one story, apocryphal, I guess, but was that it had come, these had just shown up and where did they come from and what, what do we do with them? And, <laughs> and so John said, well, if we use force perspective and we put Snow White at the top of this grotto, then she'll appear to be farther away. And then the dwarves can be closer to us in the foreground. And, and we can add some little, you know, little deer and flowers and things to mm-hmm. reinforce the scale of the dwarves, as well as the scale of what Snow White would be if she were at a distance from us. And so there's a wishing well in the foreground. And there's so many people who, um, you know, it was on display in the gallery. And then we had it as a limited edition, as well as I think a poster. So we were trying to create things that would be unique and limited but we also wanted to make things available to somebody who just loves the art but wouldn't be able to afford the lithograph right would be happy with a poster or maybe a series of note cards so we were really trying to kind of fill out this um people would come up and say my parents got engaged at that in front of snow white's grotto my dad asked my mom to marry yeah, oh, wow. in front. So they would play it as a, you know, little remembrance. There were just wonderful pieces. And it was, there was a really moody piece of the haunted mansion. And so I got really involved in, um, in developing the merchandise. And then the whole idea of, wouldn't it be great? But again, you know, I'm taking night classes at UCLA year upon year. So I had just taken a class in um, in marketing and thinking about relationship marketing was really just kind of coming online. And the fact that you could develop a database of people who had an interest in this or that artist would be something that could be really valuable to us. And so we developed um, a database program where when someone bought um, a limited edition lithograph, they would receive a certificate of authenticity and a whole kind of recording ceremony. And, Uh oh, and then, so the certificates of authenticity, I wrote. Oh, nice. That meant that I would go to Dorothea Redmond's home and sit at her kitchen table and, and I would say, now, Dorothea, this piece of art, tell me about it. And she would describe it. She'd tell me what materials she'd used and when she had made it and why she had made it. And so our certificates had a little section with a bio of the artist and then um, a section that would talk more about the piece of art and you know all the statistics of what materials that had been used. 
And so I got to I got to go to Mark and Alice Davis's home. I went to uh, Ken Anderson's home. I mean, for me, when you talk about what's a great memory of a project you worked on at Imagineering, the Disney Gallery was such a fun project. And we did we did several other shows. We did the art of Disneyland. We did the Disneyland that never was. So again, we're pulling art out of the archives and then going back to these. Most of these people had retired by then. So it was a matter of saying, okay, now, you know, tell us about, tell us about this. Mm -hmm. And then we were getting, so we were getting a lot of pressure from, um, from Dick Nunes to sell everything in the archives, just sell it. And of course, it's like a stake in the heart. Yes. <laughs> As a historian, Marty. that is like <laughs> anathema. That's terrible. It, it was, but, you know, Dick, Dick was very insistent. And so we went into the, so Van and Marty went into the archives and they chose pieces. And I mean, beautiful Herbie Ryman pieces and beautiful pieces and we had a special um event at the disney gallery and we sent postcards to all of the people who had previously purchased limited ed edition lithographs thinking okay and and disneyana people and you know so we had a list of people we felt were disney files and we sent the postcard out saying on saturday morning at nine o'clock Maybe it was Sunday morning, but nine o'clock, the gallery will be open and these pieces, original art, will be available for sale. And that morning, the line stretched through Adventureland <laughs> and we sold out by noon. And then we said, you know, at this rate, we will have liquidated the archives and we really can't do that. Right. But what if? What if we went to Disney artists and invited them to create original art of their choosing? So the subject has to be Disneyland, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be for a project. You know, Sam McKim did beautiful pieces of art, but sometimes it was just, you know, now how does this building correspond to that building? And what are we going to see when we walk through those the gates of the fort mm -hmm. or maybe it's what will the expanded veranda look like at the plaza pavilion so you know almost all the art in the archives from the early days was related to a project and and solving a problem and so in this case we went to tom gillian we went to um dan gusay we went to um Rennie Rao, um, Marquez, Nina Ray Vaughn did the most stunning painting of the Mark Twain riverboat at oh, dawn. Wow. Um, Tom Gillian did Sleeping Beauty Castle at sunset. Um, Dan Gouzet did a castle picture at Christmas time. Uh, Rennie did this charming um pastel of ladies having tea on the teacups and the cups are spinning and their hats are askew and they're, they're it was so so cute um 
Walt Paragoy did a very incredibly intricate triptych of, you know, filled with Disney characters, but in sort of grotesque. I mean, it was just, it was pure Walt Paragoy. It was, I, I, myself that I didn't buy his pencil sketch. I could never in those days have afforded the the full painted one, but mm-hmm. he did a pencil sketch that was available in the gallery for a little while and I'm I'm I so regret that I oh didn't my gosh. buy yeah. it. <laughs> but that was such a great project. That was really, really fun. That was it opened in 1987. And then it was that was the same time when Marty asked me to be the point person for to corporate alliances. And it was also at a time when Imagineering was implementing uh, job numbers. And so, um, and it was also when corporate alliances was going from just being Pete Clark and his California and Florida hospitality teams to Jay Rizzullo and, um, and the corporate alliance account executives who would really be assigned a particular brand and really work closely with that company on all the B2B opportunities there might be for them or how to leverage their brand across the entire Disney platform. And so, you know, the days of of Pete signing a sponsor and getting their name on a marquee and then, and then most of you know, in the early days, people used their sponsorships as hospitality opportunities. But by 88, 90, things were changing and there was so much pressure on companies to to really deliver, um, you know, quarterly. And so their expectations were much higher. The deals were active from the time they were signed all the way through the life of the project. And so there was much more pressure to to find more ways to deliver value, which meant not just a name on a main marquee, but a welcome message, a farewell message, um, you know, right. presence on menu boards, and and not only. And so now we didn't just have um, Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom; we had Disneyland, the Magic Kingdom, Epcot, soon to have the Disney. MGM Studios, Euro Disneyland, Tokyo Disneyland. And, you know, it just continued to sort of blossom. And so so I ended up uh, leading that effort for the next 23 years. Wow. And Marty was so involved in it that, I mean, he had, uh, when Magic Kingdom was just getting ready to open back in 1971, Dick Irvine, who was president of Imagineering at the time, or WED, um, had asked Marty to to come up with sort of a more cohesive, a more coherent approach to sponsorship because it was just almost uh, anything goes. And once you start that, then then it it gets out of hand. And our philosophy was the Disney show comes first. People come to a Disney park to be entertained. And we have really talented designers who can help us figure out how we can integrate your brand into a a story, a theme, but 
You know, if you're on Main Street at the turn of the century, we can't use the logo you're using today. The colors need to match the palette of the land. The font style needs to be sympathetic to the land. You know, the whole the whole feeling of the message has to fit the the theme. And then if we can make you a part of the story, then people will appreciate the fact that you're there. You've really, you know, the fact that that national car rental has a gate on Main Street that gives us a beautiful mural, only enhanced Main Street. And and it had a little tagline that said, discover the joys of motoring. And you think, you know, this was the point in time where, you know, you still see horse-drawn streetcars, but you also have these newfangled cars. And so that that's the perfect fit for that. Right. So, you know, it, it became really, really challenging. And then, you know, I did that for 23 years. I Marty was so involved in so much of it. And uh and it was such a delight to work with him. But you know, it was very challenging because the corporate sponsors and the corporate alliance uh champions for them would push for more and more exposure. And we're trying to protect the creative team from being painted into a corner or to accept doing something that would be so out, it would be so perfect for that instance but so outlandish if you were to say, well, their building is red and my color is orange. So I want my building to be, you know, it was right. just like, there are times when you could do something because it's just perfect for that, but can you replicate it? And how do, and how do we assure people that we're not just being arbitrary? It's not yes to this and no to that, but we had to come up with a cohesive, philosophy and guidelines that would sort of set the ground rules for everybody and to say, first of all, this is the philosophy that that we're working from. So we want to share with you that we think the Disney story comes first. And then we want people to recognize you. We want your presence to be a value for you, but we want it to be the second thing they read. And if the and if the association is right, it will be memorable. And, you know, that, and that's the, that's the key that it feels like it belongs there and that people remember it and they, and we've kept all of your competitors out. So brand managers, they would have a little bit of an adjustment kind of recalibrating their voice because they're so used to being, heard above their competitors out in the world and bigger and bolder and louder. And, and we would say here, you're the only voice for this. You have product exclusivity, so you can, you can afford to be a little more relaxed and gentle. Indeed. Then I did that until they called me to go to Paris and that was fabulous years in Paris. Well, you know, the marketing thing is so effective, as you say. It has such an impact. I mean, you think of things like the original Epcot sponsors. Those have left a sort of, for my generation, have a very nostalgic feeling. You think of things like 
Eastern Airlines is so positively remembered because of their attraction in Tomorrowland. I mean, these things do build a, a positive connection. And I would imagine there's a real art to those things. Are there any of those alliances you feel like were dealt with in a particularly creative way? Well, we had a program called Coke Activation. So, you you know, Coke had been a longtime sponsor in our parks. And, um, and what's the beauty of that is that they really are part of the experience. While you're there, you're consuming Coke products and they refresh you. Um, but, you know, sort of interestingly, Michael Ovitz had just joined Disney and he'd come from CAA where his, he had a great relationship with Sergio Zeman of Coca-Cola and Sergio Zeman had been, he, he came up with, um, was it Coke Zero? Or mm. It was the early, early Coke, I, whatever the early Coke thing was. And it that actually failed, I think. Oh, the initially. new Coke. Right, right. Oh, yeah. But anyway, Sergio Zeman was sometimes referred to as the Ayatollah Acola because he was <laughs> because he was the guy, a big, big marketing guy. And so he and Michael Ovitz had this tight relationship. And I guess the two of them decided that there should be something that these two great organizations could do together. And so they each contributed uh 10 million dollars to coke activation so we had 20 million dollars to play with and our challenge was how to how to do something with that coke experience and they had said they we a bunch of us paul uh paul pressler marty sklar um there were 20 of us who went to atlanta for a meeting with coke and they said you know, we've we've sponsored sporting events. We have painted the entire field red, um, and then we interview. and And our theory was, if it's if it's an event, sponsor it, and if it's standing still, paint it red. And and then they started researching this and interviewing people, and people just weren't getting the connection. It wasn't relevant. And so, you know, why is the field red? What does that have to do with anything? So, so they said, now we really, we want to think about these experiences in a way that really delivers on our brand message, which is cool and refreshing, or it was ice cold and refreshing. So those are two big words that connect to our Coke product, product, particularly the classic Coke product and mm-hmm. the contour bottle and the dynamic ribbon. And, um, and so we started, um, we, w- there was a small team. So Eric Jacobson, um, Leticia Lelevier, who was in charge of graphics and Eric being in charge of, Eric was the senior creative executive for all of Walt Disney World. Um, for the parks at Walt Disney World. And then there was a small team from Coca-Cola. And so we set off really walking the parks and looking at 
where is Coke sold and how is it displayed? And when we walked through Epcot, we walk, we're walking through World Showcase and we got to Canada and there are kiosks there. So they're, you know, it's not a cart. It's a, it's a built, it's a little built facility mm -hmm. and, and bless their hearts, the, the kids operating that location took their cleanest towel and put it on the nearest trash can and then set the product up. It's all they had to work with. Right. And so we looked at that and Eric got a napkin and drew an ice block on the back of the napkin and said, what if we built an ice block that could hold maybe five or six of these bottled products and it would look cool would look ice cold mm -hmm. and refreshing and and so that was you know we we developed that and the prototype weighed 70 pounds and turned yellow in the first oh, no. couple of weeks that florida sun hitting whatever but mm -hmm. we didn't give up and the vendor who was working with us on this he found a way to lighten the ice cube so it wouldn't break somebody's foot if it you know those kids are pushing those carts sure. they're loaded with ice they're loaded with product and now you just give them another 70 pounds to... so these ice blocks became ubiquitous because they were they were they delivered the message then we said you know we want the carts to um to to deliver this Coke message, but but you know if you were Coca Cola, you just roll red cars out everywhere. Right. But we're not. We're at Disney. So so for World Showcase, um, Letitia's team developed a design that really reflected the variety of cultures you find around the world, and um, and we came up with another design for Future World that had more you know more of the metallic. Um, kind of surfaces and Coca-Cola. When we went to the Magic Kingdom, we came up with four designs that so there'd be a there'd be a a design for Main Street, there'd be a design for Frontierland, a design for Fantasyland, for Tomorrowland, and for um, Adventureland. And again, taking you know taking the colors of the of the land, the color palette, and the materials and finding ways to really incorporate them. Now there would still be challenges because we, and then there were umbrellas because you know, Florida, you know, Florida. Yeah. So we wanted umbrellas. We wanted to put Coke identity on the umbrellas, but we would alternate it. Every other, every other flap would have the Coca-Cola logo on it. You know, sometimes we would find a future world umbrella on a world showcase. <laughs> sure. World showcase card. <laughs> it's a little operational things to smooth out, but um, it was. And then we also decided that there could be signature locations in each park. So the signature location would enable us to do to make a bigger statement and a bigger statement about ice cold and refreshing. So for the Magic Kingdom, we developed. A location in Tomorrowland, and we we had crates 
with intergalactic script on them. But, you know, the beauty of working with Coke was there, they have been around for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. So they have scripts that go back to the turn of the century and, and they are everywhere in the world. So if you see Coca-Cola in Hindi, you know, it's Coca-Cola. Sure. And that's perfect for Drinkwala that we developed with Joe Rohde in Animal Kingdom. And um, and in Tomorrowland, it was the rocket ship kind of in the shape of the contour bottle. And, it, and the tagline was delivering refreshment to a thirsty galaxy. Uh -huh. And it just seemed perfect. In fact, a couple of years later, and we so we did um, we did um, a cool zone in in World Showcase that had fun interactive things. You you know you'd pick up the lid to something and it would squirt you in the face right. with water. Yes. There was a drinking bound. I mean, there was a vending machine that you know would talk would have sounds associated with it. A big cooling tower that was sending off smoke or you know steam from the ice old time coolers that you could you know get your product in an old-fashioned ice cooler um so we did drink walla in animal kingdom we did the cool zone we also did we ended up doing a club cool that um or ice we did club cool first in future world and then we did ice station cool that really you know you went through an ice tunnel and oh, yeah. then you emerged into the section where you get these free beverages. You can taste Beverly from Italy and another Coke beverage from someplace else. And and there was a there was a survey that people who visited Ice Station Cool rated their entire Epcot experience more highly than did people who had not visited, which we thought was pretty That's remarkable. Fine. I'm so glad you brought that up because when you mentioned Coke, I, I immediately went to Ice Station Cool in my mind because first I loved you had the kind of snow machines when you walked in, which was fantastic for Florida. Uh, but then, you know, there's so many elements of that experience that have become sort of real distinctive Disney experiences. I mean, you, you mentioned Beverly. That's something that everybody knows who's like a Disney fan knows about Beverly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and how yucky it tastes <laughs> unless maybe it's the acquired taste i mean it was the one where you go Ooh, hey come mm -hmm. here try this yeah oh it's it's all about getting like your mom to taste it or something like that yeah. like oh try right. this out. this is great yeah. <laughs> right so we had a great experience working with coke because you know we had we had so many different ways of playing with the brand and and i think we just you know at disneyland for the moonliner was a big rocket ship and we worked with a vendor to develop a device that when you bought the product it would shoot the bottle up out of the the counter oh wow now the first the first try the vendor the vendor could shoot it halfway across a football field, <laughs> but just to go <laughs> about a foot, that was harder. <laughs> yeah. And then years later, I was doing um, 
uh, a presentation to Coca-Cola executives in Tokyo. And they sponsored um, Space Mountain in Tokyo. And we were, and Space Mountain was going to go through a, a whole renovation. And honestly, the pre-show for Space Mountain was so commercial. Mm. It had been done a long time ago before anybody was talking about what was appropriate and, you know, repeatable and that sort of thing. And so we were really hoping we could show them the variety of things we had done in with Coke activation in the States and how we could how we could imagine giving them a new identity at Space Mountain that would be memorable and cool and um and so I'm I was taking the executives through this presentation and when we saw the Tomorrowland installation with the with the crates that had Coca-Cola in script on it, he actually said, go back to that last slide. What where's that from? And I said, well, we made that up. But when you go into space, we have a script already for you. Yeah. And then they ended up doing, the, have you seen the themed vending machines they did in Tokyo? Yes. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Now, we were really resisting the idea of vending machines in the park at that point. So the fact that they were so expensive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was it <a> <laughs> it's like well yeah we could do them but you know they have to be like this right exactly and they did them <laughs> up big uh, of course tokyo does everything <laughs> big so that makes sense yeah but, they did yeah they when did, you integrate so. it well I, I mean you mentioned drink and that even if that was not a corporate alliance just graphically that is such a beautiful use of that those coat graphics in that location with that script, it's gorgeous. It really it is. is. It really is. And, yeah. uh, you know, Club uh, Cool yeah. was uh, so Joe much Brody was so fun to work with on that. You know, he, because they, you know, there are villages in Bali who, where they were hand carving things for, um, for Disney's Animal Kingdom. And that, that whole, little um statuary that encircles the ceiling mm -hmm. have if you've seen that yeah it's people carrying crates of coke and joe had them sculpt it hand carve it and he said you know this will become part of their culture <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> this this relic we don't we don't remember what it means or where it came from but. That's too funny. I always enjoyed the little uh, at at uh, studios. They there. This may have been tied in with the paper towel thing. Back on the New York Street, there was a, a toilet paper tree in the window. Uh, were you ever aware oh, yes. of that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Yes, that was. I'm trying. Was it Stephen Silvestri who came up with that one? And there uh, was like a it, soccer goal made out of paper towels, I think. But yeah. it was the toilet. Yes. I was at the studios one day. This was, I don't, probably 15 years ago. And it's like, there's a tree made out of toilet paper in that window. Yes. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. That was not my doing, but that was part of, but part of the, you know, the fun of working with the creative teams trying to figure out 
what do we do here? Yeah. <laughs> How do we tell that story? <laughs> uh, well, then you, you, as you mentioned, you wind up in Paris. How'd that happen? One day I got a, it was Martin Luther King's birthday. I was sitting, so it's a, you know, a holiday. I was in the, in my car, in the parking lot at Fashion Island and Patrick Brennan called me and said, Peggy, how would you like to move to Paris and lead the Imagineering team out of the blue? Wow. And I thought, okay, Peggy, you've been around long enough. Don't say yes right away. (laughs) 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 But think about it and, and see what this is all about. So, so I thought about it and honestly, I thought, well, what, what an honor. I'm so amazed, so delighted, so thrilled that they thought of me to lead this Imagineering team because I've never done anything like that. You know, I haven't been in the field working with the designers, you know, aside from my doing the spaceship earth research and then working on the Disney gallery, but really not the nuts and bolts of not what color do we paint the ceiling and mm-hmm. any of that stuff. So, um, and then I, and then I thought about all the reasons I couldn't go. I had just moved my, my 90 year old dad from Morro Bay down to Corona del Mar. And he was living in a house just down the street from me. And, you know, I was taking him to doctor's appointments and, and, cooking dinner for him a couple nights a week and cleaning the house. And, and, uh, and so I talked to Rich, the guy who had moved me off of storybook land 50 years earlier to work (laughs) on the Matterhorn so we could date. (laughs) And I talked to Rich and said, you know, look, can you believe this? This is what they, they've suggested. I go to Paris and lead a team of, 25 or 30 people. And up to this point, I had a small um, participant services team of six people. So, and, you know, three in Florida and two in California. And and we worked with the creative teams around the world, but I've never done that. So I said, pretty amazing. They thought of me to do this, but of course I can't do it because my dad and Rich said, I'll take care of your dad. And I said, well, then, us our relationship he said ah we'll be fine and we were and so i said yes and uh, the, and the thing that really sort of pushed me over the edge was because you can i i was thinking i love this participant stuff i've been doing i have mastered it no one knows more about this stuff than i do except for marty but <laughs> You know, I know the backstory to everything. I've been doing this for nearly a quarter of a century. I know this stuff and and I'm very comfortable with it. So now I'm going to do something that I have zero comfort level with. But I have two nieces and they were they'd graduated from college and they're just beginning their careers. And I was thinking you know they're smart girls and uh, and i want them to be able to be brave enough to accept opportunities that come that come their way 
regardless of whether they are comfortable with it or not. In fact, you know, be it's good to be uncomfortable with things. So, so I thought if I want them to demonstrate that level of courage, then I guess I have to model it myself. So they really are, they, they really were the ones that made me think, okay, I must do this. And, and so I moved to Florida in, I mean, I moved to France in um, the fall of 2010 and, and I um, I was replacing Dave Minichello. He and his wife Kim and their daughter were moving back to Orlando, and and Dave had only been there about two years, I think. And he had, which is barely time to get your feet wet. And you know, he'd been involved in a number of different projects that they had considered but not done. And and he had worked with Kathleen Nunez on an organizational plan. And so I took it to Joe Schott who was the chief operating officer. And I said, you know, let me show you Dave's plan for the department. And he said, I don't want to see it because I don't think you should have 30 people reporting to you. That's not a organization. I think you you need an organizational structure. And I thought, well, I get this. I was in operations for five years at the beginning of my career. Mm-hmm. And I know operations is a more hierarchical organization. And, you know, you have you have attraction hosts and hostesses and leads and assistant supervisors and supervisors and managers and directors. And but we imagineering is a more of a matrix organization and and these people have been working this way for the last 20 years. Right. So who am I to come in and change it all? But if you want me to, if you insist, then I will take a look at it. So I went back and I, you know, I I hadn't been there three weeks. And uh, so I set up something like speed dating. So everybody had a 30 minute meeting with me one-on-one. And it gave me a chance to get to know them a little bit better to say, okay, what did you do before this? What do you love to do? What have you done? And how do you see yourself in the future? Where do you want to go? And who do you love working with? And so, because I was also having to fill the art director for the Disneyland Park position because Eve Benietta had been doing that and they took him off to, to Tokyo. So I had... I had a couple of different uh, assi- a couple of different objectives. Mm-hmm. But out of that, I thought, you know, we have a design function. So let's organize ourselves around a design studio. And I asked Alain Champeau to be the manager of that. And Alain had been there 20 years. He'd been working side by side with these people. He had a, he had a, a degree from Ecole de Beaux-Arts, so a very prestigious um, art degree. But, you know, he's not a manager. Nobody's been a manager there in 20 years. Clive Moreton um, had the engineering background and experience. He'd been working in the kind of the show technical side of things with looking at audio animatronics and projection and lighting and sound and all of those show technical 
think so. I asked Clive Morton to become the manager of our show technical group. And then Kathleen Nunez, who had honestly been doing so much of the administration stuff, I asked her to focus on on the documentation, which was a huge part of our mission, and um, and the coordination. She also facilitated all the conversations with HR and finance, um, groups that only spoke French, which I do not speak. Oh my gosh, um, yeah. <laughs> so now people hated it at first because it's sort of like, I worked with that Alan guy, Alan guy, for 20 years and now I report to him. Like, who oh. made him? But within a year, I think everybody came to see how much better it was for them because Alan being really close to their disciplines was in a much better position to make recommendations about what training would be beneficial to them. How do you, he, and it turns out he just loved organizational development. So, you know, we would, we would have meetings where we would say, you know, we want to, we want to organize for now and for the next couple of years, but we want to think about the growth of the organization and people who hired in 20 years ago now have 20 years of experience. So how do we leverage their knowledge and um, how do we recalibrate their job descriptions and compensation? And here are people, Alan and Clive, really invested, and Kathleen, but really invested in the growth and development of the people they're responsible for. And they, it, it was so, it was so good. And um, it just, you know, I think I really am so thankful that Joe had that inspiration to say, hey, you know, this isn't, this isn't an organization, everybody tearing up to you. Right. And, and, you know, I, I prepared myself and we grew the group to 50. So they weren't all permanent people because there's such um there's so many hurdles to hiring permanently because permanent means lifetime yes. pretty much um but but we were able to um to augment our team in really thoughtful ways and and it was just so great to see 50 people working together and knowing that you're you're developing the future imagineers as well as the people who are and and succession planning you know i mean when you have a team that has worked together for 20 or 30 years you know that they're going to be coming up on retirement i mean all those people i worked with at epcot 40 years ago they're retired and right. but what you want is to be able to bridge their retirement by being able to have them mentor people along the way, just as we were mentored by the first generation of Imagineers who built Disneyland and then the Magic Kingdom. That's great. So it was a great experience. I just, I, I loved every minute of it. It was so challenging, but the people were so warm, so wonderful. Um, I uh, I just felt like, and so the original assignment was three years, 
And when um, when I was coming up on that three years, Patrick Brennan and Peter McGraw said, you know, how would you like, you could stay five, you could be there two more years. And I didn't think twice about it. <laughs> like you, so you were so yes, I'd point. love to. Yeah. I loved it. I really, really loved it. Well, it's such a gorgeous resort. It's such a gorgeous park. It's just unbelievably gorgeous. And the great thing for us, too, was that right about that time, as we were approaching the 20th anniversary, Bob Iger and Tom Staggs and Meg Crofton were paying close attention to Disneyland Paris. and. Bob was able to buy the banks out of the deal. So Disney didn't have a third party that they had to negotiate with if they wanted to do anything to enhance the park or add new attractions. Or, you know, he said, our name's on the door and this has to reflect um, the quality of, because, you know, the park when it was built was state of the art. I mean, all those pirates were A100 figures. Mm -hmm. But 20 years later, we're the only park that has those figures. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So that impacts things like, you know, we need three of those, you know, I don't know what they're called, but little parts yeah. <laughs> for, uh, for a pirate. <laughs> and, and they would come out of Florida. But so we put the order in, in October when we got funding and Florida would put it on their list and their system was sort of set up for, you know, when we get, when we're going to make 10 of these, then we'll go out and find a vendor, but we're the only people needing it. So it never got fulfilled. Oh gosh. And then our funding would run out. And so we'd say, well, why is this still broken? Well, we don't have the parts. We can't get the parts. And we're the only people in the world who need these. And, you know, so, I mean, we, um, Patrick and Ian McVitie and others really worked closely to, and Clive worked closely to figure out how to resolve some of those supply issues that were, that were haunting us. I hadn't considered But that. until you yeah. get in there and start going, well, why is this? And then why is that? And then, you know, each, each group, whether they were in France or Florida, thought that other group is crazy. I mean, they place orders and then they place them again. And, <laughs> and we're thinking, why aren't those people sending us the parts? <laughs> right, right. Patrick had a, he, he was in charge of global show quality. And so he had relationships with, with people all around the world and the maintenance teams all around the world and with Jeff Volley and, um, and others. So, you know, he could have those conversations about, wouldn't you guys like to have the electric head? Think how, think how great that would be if you had that, how easy it would be to maintain. And, you know, so having that kind of global connection was really a wonderful thing. So I feel like I was there at such a great time because things really were starting to, you know, we were starting to get a lot of, of support for, uh, for doing things that the park desperately needed to be done. Yeah. You get the feeling that it's almost like the park was just like frozen in time for about 20 years or so. 
And then finally, Disney was able to take some ownership and really start to make some changes. So I would imagine that would have been really exciting. It was very exciting. And it was also sort of, and let's not stop here. Let's, you know, we have a 25th coming up, then there'll be the 30th. What can we do now? You can't, you know, you can't change all the paving in the park overnight. But if you have a three-year program, you know, you know, how you're going to, how you're going to schedule things that have major impacts on, on lots of different lines of business. And so that wrapped it up for you. Paris, Paris is not a bad way to go out. I thought it was pretty, it was, yes, it was really, really unbeatable. It was just like the high point. And I felt like all of those classes I'd taken at UCLA were coming together. I would sit there thinking, I actually know what we should do. And then I had a team of people who were so invested in this. And because I knew I was leaving, this is like, this is not about me. This is about building an organization that you own because I'll be going back to California and then I'll be retiring. So this is really, you know, this isn't about my future career because this is it. And this is about you. And so, Two years later, I went back to Paris to visit after I retired, and I kind of steeled myself for, okay, maybe they'll have gone back to the way it was before, right? But they had not, oh, and good. and Clive took me on a little walk to show me where the show technical team was set up, and he said, you know, sometimes it just takes somebody with a different perspective, kind of a fresh eye to see what's possible. And I took that to be the hugest compliment because I I was really proud of, I, you know, I didn't go to Paris with any idea of changing anything. I thought, oh, the, you know, these people know way more about it than I do. So I'm just going to go and observe. And, and that wasn't what Joe Shot had in mind. <laughs> and thank goodness he got us started so early on that we really had time to, to, build toward uh, toward that so it was really great yeah, and sets a good foundation for a future for future success well you've talked us through 50 years of history and we couldn't be more grateful you've been just really wonderful and really generous so uh, thank you so much thank you it was really fun michael Well, that wraps up part two of our interview with the great Peggy Ferris. Jeff, what did you think? Well, again, like I said in part one, uh, so great to have a woman uh, to talk to. We've, we've never had an extended interview with a woman who worked with Disney in this time period. So just a great, unique perspective about what it was like to work in that environment. And I'm so grateful for Peggy taking the time to to tell us about it and to tell all of you who are listening about it. I think uh, there's a lot of people who could listen to this and get a lot out of it. Absolutely. And I strongly encourage everyone to check out uh, the book. We talked about the women of Walt Disney Imagineering it, a lot of extraordinary people contributing to that work. And hopefully I like to have a lot of them on in the future because there are some, really great talents there and they've got some great stories to tell. So hopefully we'll 
just make the rotation talk to talk to everybody but you should absolutely check out that book yes absolutely and and yeah let's get them on michael that would be great i know i'm excited you never know who's going to come up next that's right well it's that time of the episode where we ask our dear host michael did anyone sign up for patreon this month Yes, we have several people to welcome to the Patreon, the old Patreon this month. I'd like to welcome Ariel, Nicholas, and Cody, all who signed up. They'll, of course, be getting early access to episodes, some special content. In fact, I just posted some special content this last week. So, uh, extra extras and getting a little packet of Progress City swag in the mail. So, that's fun. And... At the uh, silver level, they'll be joining us for our monthly live stream event, which is always a good time. We have a fun hangout with the folks in the chat there, and we have some rare photos, some rare video of whatever we've talked about that month, and we just have a good time hanging out and chatting with the regulars. So it's always a good time, and thank you, of course, always to everyone who supports us. Absolutely. And the most rare thing... The banter. The banter. It's all about the banter. It's the rarest of banters. But yeah, uh, I look forward to our live stream later this month. Um, stay tuned to our channels to hear information on that. Speaking of which, Michael, he's on Twitter at Progress City USA. I'm on Twitter at Jeff G. Crawford. You can always use the email. Email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com and uh michael why don't you tell our listeners what we got in the hopper coming up next well believe it or not we're walking on air <laughs> i never thought we could be so free i uh, after a podcast which took a 10-year leave of absence after its first three episodes. We are closing in on our 50th episode. Big 5-0! It really is. I mean, you know, we, we go on from the scars that we got from being so bad at the beginning at doing more episodes, but they still linger. You know, I still feel teased. So... You know, one more opportunity to say to people, we did it. We ended up doing more episodes. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. Yeah. Did the more than three. Is rough. I listened. Uh, I posted that big three-hour-long Frank Stanek interview for our Patreon folks this last week. And so I went back and listened to some of it. And it's hard. And that's even just a couple of years ago. It's hard to listen back. <laughs> you know, it's you get the cringes. But... We've, we've made it. We've made it to the big 5-0. And so we're going to have a celebration looking back at how Disney celebrated some other 50th anniversaries. Yeah, maybe we'll get some inspiration on how to celebrate our own. Maybe Steve Martin will show up. Who knows? Oh, that would be nice. Yeah. We'll find out. But uh, so a join us then. Yeah. Hulu partnership, a little that's Hulu right. plug. There. That's, that's right. So will you join us to celebrate, dear listener? In just a few weeks, we'll be back celebrating episode number 50. Uh, so from now until then, 
We look forward to hearing from you. We look forward to joining you again. We hope you stay well, and we will see you soon.